Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is a returning guest, Sophie Medlin, who is a dietitian and chair of the British Dietetic Association. I almost stuttered on that one. Dietetic Association and a lecturer at King's College in London. Uh, in today's conversation, we're going to discuss uh, some of these diet diabetes medications people are taking to lose weight. How to are all our uh, nutrition answer uh, questions will be answered, and uh, we're going to have some fun. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie Medlin. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me back. I'm so excited. So right off the bat. What is the difference between a dietitian and nutritionist? Yeah, great question. So here in the UK and also in the US, nutritionist isn't a protected title. So essentially anyone can call themselves a nutritionist, even if they've not got any qualifications or they've done one of these kind of online qualifications that's taken them five minutes or whatever it might be. So we have to be super careful when we're working with nutritionists that they actually have the qualifications that they're saying they have because not everybody will. Dietitian is a registered title, much like doctor or nurse, so you can't use it unless you are properly qualified as a dietitian. And dietitians are like the medical nutrition people. So whereas nutritionists should be working with healthy people to get healthier, for example, like working with a personal trainer who's got nutrition qualifications, that would be appropriate. But with um, with dietitians, we have to do medical training. We work in hospitals, we train in hospitals, and that's how you kind of differentiate between the two. So if you have a medical condition that you want advice about nutrition regarding, you need a dietitian. Well, so what is your background education training so as a dietitian? Dietitians do, yeah, so dietitians do a degree in the science of nutrition and then learn how to apply that to medicine through additional education, but also by doing placements in hospitals. So we work alongside doctors and nurses to understand how we how medical nutrition impacts people and, and what people need under certain medicines situations so for example you'll find dietitians working on intensive care units you'll find dietitians working in tube feeding environments where people can't eat anything at all so we're very much kind of in the medical sector and only dietitians are in the medical sector not nutritionists and we so we have to do those placements in order to train properly so that we are properly qualified to work with medical patients i have a lot of friends who are taking wagovi ozempic manjaro to lose weight and they're seeing great results. They're losing about 10 pounds a month. I don't trust it. I don't know enough about <laughs> it, but I am seeing that they're receiving results. I don't see them having much side effects. What's your opinion about people who are taking Wagovi, Ozempic, Manjaro, these diabetic uh, medications as a form of weight loss? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's huge here in the UK as well. It's something that's been very uh, effective for people. Obviously, it's very much for people who've got the money for it. And there's been really bad problems with availability of it, it even for diabetic patients who are being looked after by the health service here in the UK, because people are taking it and the supplies of it are being used up by people who don't really need it, who are taking it for, let's say, aesthetic purposes rather than medical purposes. I work with patients now who are using it and have used it and patients who are trying to get off it but don't want to regain all the weight. And of course, that's a problem with these kinds of procedures and these kinds of medications is that very often, as soon as you come off it, the weight will come back on. And of course, 
the vast majority of people in the world don't want to be injecting themselves once a week for the rest of their lives in order to manage their weight. One of the big issues with them is that they they seriously suppress your appetite. So most people and lots of people will feel quite nauseous and feel really unwell taking them. And that's the reason that they stop you from eating isn't because they're working some metabolic magic or doing anything that kind of is seriously impressive in terms of your metabolism or anything like that. All they're doing is significantly suppressing your appetite so you don't feel like eating. And most people feel super, super sick and nauseous when they're taking them. So you can see how for some people that would, I mean, it works for most people, but most people also don't want to feel sick all the time, don't want to be only eating one meal a day and struggling and battling through that. And that's a very, it's very difficult to meet your nutritional requirements when you feel that unwell all the time. So whilst I can see that there are upsides for people and it can seem like a quick fix, it's certainly not for everybody. And obviously, for most of my patients who struggle with their weight, it's not because their appetite is out of control. It's because they're struggling with their relationship with food. And so ultimately, it's it's not the answer for a lot of people. Yeah, I would imagine if it's restricting your uh, cravings or, or, you know, want for food, there would also be some nutritional deficiencies that are coming along with that. Are you finding that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I think the issue is that people are often eating tiny bits of things that are perhaps not that healthy they're still eating the same perhaps less healthy foods but in much smaller quantities and then of course doing that it's much more difficult to get all of the nutrients that you need from your diet so the general consensus within the medical community is that these medications can make you thinner but not necessarily healthier uh that's interesting because we do have an association with thinness and healthiness right if you're thin you must be healthy and then when you die we're like what happened yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's a massive issue in society in general. Social media doesn't help with that kind of stuff. And, you know, the vast majority of people who are very thin, particularly in my industry, and we worry about their health. It's not that they are thin and healthy. Thinness doesn't always, well, very rarely, in fact, it equates to health. You talked earlier about our relationship with food. Can you speak more to that? What does that mean when we say, when I think about relationships, I think about a person, I don't necessarily think about food, what do you mean by our major problem or more of a problem is our relationship with food? Yeah, sure. So we all have a relationship with food. And for, for some people, it's really good and positive. And for some people, it's really negative And they find themselves chronically dieting and struggling with, you know, being able to regulate their appetite, regulate their food intake more accurately, because they have a complicated relationship with food. And your relationship with food typically starts quite early in your life and your relationship with food will be uh, dictated to a certain extent by your parents' relationship with food. So, for example, did you learn that when you're good, you get special food and when you're bad, you don't get certain food? Did you learn that you have to finish all the food on your plate? Did you learn that being thin was very important and very good growing up? Did you have sort of messages from your parents that gaining weight was a terrible thing and something to be ashamed of mixed in with messages like if you're good you can have this to eat which is quite confusing as you can imagine to a child when we say it like that but it's very often the way that we communicate our love is through food but we also often communicate that being fat is very bad so it's a complicated thing for a child's brain to grasp onto we now also have a generation of children who've been taught that sugar is dangerous you shouldn't eat sugar it's toxic you know even fruit sugars some children are afraid of and then their friends are eating these things or they are offered these things at parties and they find out they like them and then they become frightened of them. 
So there's all sorts of factors from our childhood and then through into our adulthood. So I work with lots of patients who, for example, were taken to taken to slimming clubs as child as children and taught to diet from a very young age. Um, all of these things feed into our relationship with food and therefore how easy or difficult we find it to live alongside food as we all do now. We, we have this expression that we live in the larder now, whereas previously we did not. And for that reason, it's it's important that we have a healthy relationship with food because it's constantly around us. And for those who have a complicated relationship with food, it can take up a huge amount of their brain energy. It can be really exhausting thinking about what they should or shouldn't be eating that week and what their new diet says and how awful perhaps they feel about their body and the way that they look and, and their body size. So it's something that we work on extensively in clinical practice because it's a, it's a complicated thing for lots of people and very much part of psychology as opposed to kind of education most people who I work with know what they should and shouldn't be eating in inverted commas in order to be healthy it's not that they don't know it's that they're finding it difficult to implement that and the reason that they find it difficult to implement it is largely because they have a complicated relationship with food where it becomes more than it should be to their day-to-day life yeah I definitely um, relate to using food as a reward and that's something that I've been working on recently with myself um, because I recognize that it's not so much that I want a reward for what I've done today. Like I I worked out so hard today. I deserve a reward or I really, I fired off five emails and I deserve it. But what I'm really seeking is kind of a release from the stress and pain. And I hear you saying yes, but even I haven't conceptualized what I mean by that. So can you elaborate on sure. that? <laughs> yeah, of course. So when we eat certain foods, and particularly our brain loves fat, so and fat and carbohydrate in combination. So if you think about donuts, if you think about biscuits, if you think about like, um, you know, high calorie, carby type food, those are the sorts of foods that our brain loves. And that's because if we think from an evolutionary perspective, When we came across those kinds of foods, we should have been eating lots of them because we wouldn't come across them very often, barely at all in nature. Does fat and carbohydrate come alongside each other? It's almost always separated. So our brain doesn't quite know what to do with it. It's absolutely delighted when it comes across it. And so what happens is we release lots of endorphins, lots of happy hormones when we when we eat those kinds of foods. And what we know from the research is that when you are stressed, you release even more happy hormones when you eat those foods. And when you're tired, you also eat even more, you release even more of these happy hormones when you eat those foods. So we have this kind of need, particularly when we're stressed and we're tired, when we feel like we've had a crap day and we're feeling like I really deserve something nice right now. What we're looking for there is this chemical reward in our brain. And so often we give ourselves that chemical reward through food rather than through loads of other things that are on that menu of things that you could be doing that aren't food related to give yourself that same chemical reward. So for example, we could get that chemical reward from going for a walk, we could get it from stretching yoga, we could get it from connecting with our partner, we could get it from calling someone and reaching out and having a nice conversation, we could get it from sex, we could get it from loads of other places. But the vast majority of people go to food as their first thing. And one of the reasons for that is because when we're children, very often when we're having a difficult emotion or something's going on, we need distracting. We we are taught that food is the way to do that. And I see people in my life doing that with their children. And I don't think it's dangerous, but it's certainly a complicated message to teach children is that your your emotions can be dealt with and should be dealt with through food. Oh, you just illuminated 
oh my, I feel so happy right now. You don't even understand. <laughs> because w- what I hear you saying is that the release that I'm seeking is a release of the endorphins. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and that so, comes through. Uh, go ahead. And you can get that from loads of different places. So what I talk to my patients about is writing themselves a menu of things that they could do when they're having that emotion. They know they want to eat, but they're not physically hungry. So I've had my dinner, for example, I've eaten my evening meal. I know I'm not physically hungry, but I notice I want to eat. What do I really want? Am I lonely? Am I bored? Do I feel like I need a reward? Do I feel like I need something nice because I've had a difficult day? What is it that I'm looking for in that moment? And what are the things that I know give me that positive feeling as well? And for some of my patients, they may never have looked for anything else. They may not be doing any kind of self-care activities, for example. They may never be doing anything nice for themselves. They might not be exercising. They might not be able to exercise because of physical disabilities. So it's about really looking for things that you can do in that moment that are going to make you feel good. And I'd really encourage you, Leo, and anyone who's finding this problem as well, to write yourself a menu of things that you can do. Keep it on your phone so it's always there. I notice I want to eat, but I'm not physically hungry. What else could I do? And it won't work every time is the truth. Like not every time you do it, will it do the, do the trick for you. You may still go to the biscuit cupboard or the, you know, to go and get, we call them biscuits in this country. Of course, I mean, cookies, you could be going to look for, you could still find yourself going to, but the most important thing is that you try because in our brains, there's this very strong connection between that emotion, whatever it might be, or that feeling and the food, especially if that's how it's been treated for a long time. And so what it takes is us to walk a different path through our neurotransmitters. So we have to start to forge that path. So we start going, okay, I'm going to try and do some stretching exercises instead of eating this food, or I'm going to have a nice bath instead of eating this food, or I'm going to try and do something else. I'm going to practice. I'm going to start walking that path. And before you know it, that path will become the strong path. So when you have that emotion, you'll go, God, I need to get home and do some yoga, or I really need to go for a walk. Or I really want to call my wife or my my partner. I want to spend some time with this person because that also makes me feel good. But very often, you know, for the vast majority of people, the the most well-trodden path is I'm having this emotion. Therefore, this is going to be the outcome of it. Food is going to be the outcome. And and what's coming up for me right now is the idea that I think a lot of times I want the release of endorphins through connection. But my history has taught me that connection can lead to hurt hurtful or painful emotions you know sometimes you call somebody to connect and uh, they say something that you're like ah now I feel even worse you know about my day or now I'm dealing with their stuff on top of it yeah Uh, so I can I could see people wanting connection but um, having had maybe um, painful experiences with connecting with other people uh, they go yeah. towards food and drugs. Of course, yeah. And it, you, you're right to use drugs as a reference there because, of course, for a lot of people, the same thing that you're looking for is the same thing that a gambling addict is looking for when they feel the need to gamble when they're stressed. The same thing that a sex addict is looking for when they feel the need to have sex and seek that when they're in an anxious state, whatever it might be, or they've had a difficult day. Same for drug users. So it's the same pattern of behavior that needs correcting or working on and, and, and nurturing it's not it's not unusual it's not it's not uncommon it's just that most people use food thankfully because of course it's probably the least destructive of all the options um 
So it's about finding lots of things that you can do. And I appreciate that not everyone's lucky enough to have a network of people that they can reach out to in these moments. But one of the things that I think is important, and I'm sure you would talk about this as well on the podcast, is about sort of reaching out to people more, working on those connections. Because when we have healthy friendships and, and healthy boundaries with people, we can say, hey, I, I just wanted to have a quick, quick chat with you. Have you got some time? Check in with people before you start it's not necessarily about offloading it's about maybe having a laugh and enjoying their company it's not necessarily a sort of offloading moment and I certainly have situations where I've had a bad day and I call somebody to to release and they end up telling me all their problems as well so (laughs) I get that but it's maybe about trying to forge those friendships where you have a quick check-in with them before you offload or before they offload on you which is always good useful boundaries but equally things like watching a few stand-up comedy clips on YouTube or watching funny cat videos or whatever it might be all of these things will give you the same positive like positivity that you're looking for in that moment so it doesn't have to be coming from somebody else and I think it's healthy for us to as individuals and as humans in general to have lots of ways that we can get that benefit for ourselves without relying on other people yeah because I find myself if I don't if I don't get the release in that healthy funny light-hearted way then I tend to want to watch more crime shows. Well, I'm like, if I'm <laughs> sure. in pain, I might as well stay in pain. I'm just going to wallow here and stay in that fight yeah. or flight kind of response instead of listening to music, exercising, meditating, uh, you know. Yeah. And isn't that so interesting because there's been such a huge, uh, huge thing on crime shows recently and, and men and women listening, like being obsessed with true crime and things like that. And you know, I'm not sure how healthy that is for us. Our general psyche no yeah i just i just bought um like three crime novels and as i'm reading them i'm like i shouldn't be reading this it's just putting <laughs> me in that fight or flight like am yeah. i am i crazy sure i am um <laughs> so you know this whole idea of you know talking about endorphins right um we are also going to supplements to try to get the things that we think we might be missing i mean people are taking multivitamins they're taking uh, uh, omegas they're taking all these different supplements do you believe in supplements and if so what kind of supplements do people really need yeah great question so i full disclosure i design supplements for the industry so i've got a financial interest in supplements and i work with lots of supplement companies to develop you know, better quality supplements. And there's such a huge uh, market for these things, right? It's it's massive. And most people try all kinds of different ones in their lifetime. And, and the value of that industry is enormous. I think what we have to do is look at our current diet and have a little think about whether we think we're getting everything that we need from our diets before we start taking supplements. So if, for example, you've cut out dairy, well, what are the nutritional implications of that? And do I need to supplement I'm eating less meat, what might I be getting less of in my diet? There are questions we can ask ourselves about what we're eating. And, and, and so many people now live on the go. So food is very much what I can pick up when I'm moving around as opposed to something that's planned and considered in terms of nutrition. And that's normal. You know, it's the way we live now because we live in this environment where food is so readily available. So it's about just kind of having a little think about your diet. Have you cut anything out? Have you changed anything? Do you need anything extra? before you kind of take the leap and make a plan for yourself. But if we think, if we focus primarily on brain health, for example, 
and our mental health. What we know is that many, many people who live with depression and anxiety will have B vitamin deficiencies. B vitamins are the precursors for serotonin, for endorphins, for melatonin, for so many different really important brain chemicals in our bodies. And when we become deficient in B vitamins, we're at much greater risk of um, of depression and anxiety in these conditions. So if you're someone who's struggling with those kinds of things, it might be that diet, diet has an impact on what's going on for you. And what we don't know at the moment is whether the B vitamin deficiencies are there and then we develop these problems or whether when we get depressed and anxious we change our diets for the worse and then develop nutritional deficiencies so it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario at the moment but ultimately if you are someone that's struggling with your mental health then b vitamins are super super important b vitamin complexes are not expensive and it's something that you can take because they're water soluble vitamins they come in and out of your body very easily and so for that reason they're pretty safe for people to be taking um, so B vitamins are super important for our mental health and for our general well-being. And then omega-3s are another one. So omega-3s come from oily fish or they can come from algae oil um, if you're vegan or vegetarian. But it's super important to take the ones that have two of the fatty acids called EPA and DHA. And it's really important that your omega-3 supplement contains those because we're really bad at converting the plant-based form of those into uh, the healthy fats that our brain needs, for example. So Oily fish and B vitamins are super, super helpful and important for stressed people. We use up, our modern lifestyles are like a drain for B vitamins in the body. So caffeine drains B vitamins, stress drains B vitamins, lack of sleep drains B vitamins, alcohol drains B vitamins. So you can see how it's a real like melting pot of B vitamin deficiencies and how much more common they're going to be in modern times. Oh, I didn't realize that caffeine uh, drains vitamins that that's uh that's quite remarkable i i was taking nutritional yeast as a way of getting my b vitamins but it made my farts stink so yeah i can imagine (laughs) why is that why why? i was like this is supposed to be healthy but it does not smell healthy at it smells too yeah so it's it's just like something that's quite highly fermented so it'll interact with your the microbiome so the bugs in your gut and then release gases that you probably don't want to be releasing so does that mean that I are are stinky farts a sign that I should not be eating whatever I just ate? Or is that a sign that it's cleaning out something that should not be in my body? Yeah, good question. So with the smell of your gas that you're producing, what we think is that, that there's only certain bacteria that produce foul smelling gas. And the ones that produce foul smelling gas are not the good guys. So the bad guys release methane and sulfur, and those are the the gases that smell particularly bad. The good bacteria in our gut release gases that don't really smell of anything. So ultimately, it's about looking at the balance of your diet and going, okay, yeah. And most people will recognize, for example, if you know a man or a woman, could be, often not, who eats too much meat, for example, or if you yourself go out and you eat something that's particularly high in meat or dairy even you'll notice that the smell of your gas is different equally if you eat like a really high fat meal then some of that fat might get into the colon where it's fermented by these less positive bacteria so most of the time if your gas is particularly foul smelling it's a sign that you're feeding the less good guys and you're not feeding the good guys so it's a good idea to redress the diet and and for some people it might just be that that you know that food in particular didn't suit them and it's not right for them i mean yeast is just generally one of those things that some people can struggle to digest 
So it's definitely about listening to your body and taking notice and then redressing things slightly. You know, we're coming up on a new year and, and people are so many diets. And I know that you are the founder of the mind diet. What do people need to know before they start any diet, whether it's keto, Mediterranean, the mind diet? What, what do they, should, should they, they just hop in? Or are there things that they should be aware of or check up on before they start? Yeah, a great question. So I'm definitely a big advocate of the mind diet, but I, I wish I'd founded it, but I definitely didn't. But I'm a big advocate of it. I think that the main thing to think about is to, to consider if this diet that you're embarking on is encouraging you to cut out food groups. So I see so many patients in my clinic who, for example, gone on a keto diet, even maybe for just a few months, and now they've got a really bad problem with their gut health because our gut our gut bacteria really need whole grain carbohydrates to be as healthy as they can be so we have to think about whether we're cutting out food groups and if actually that's good for our health or actually it's it's not so positive for our health so the best sort of research diets are things like the mediterranean diet and they're we're also focusing a lot on gut health now as well so things like trying to get 30 different plants in your diet a week these kinds of things are healthy they're about dietary variety increasing dietary variety and trying to focus on reducing processed foods in the diet and that's really important and really healthy when i see people who are following keto diets these kind of fad diets what we see is them replacing what could be you know say for example they're replacing fruit as a snack in the afternoon with some kind of random keto bar that's full of chemicals and colorings and sweeteners and things that we know are not good for us. So it's just looking to see whether the diet that you're looking to embark on is encouraging definitely less processed food in the diet, more plants in the diet, or whether it's encouraging you to buy this snack bar, buy this drink, buy this meal replacement thing, because all of those things are just ultra processed foods in disguise. So we need to just look to focus on whole foods as much as possible. Yeah, I had a a doctor tell me not to eat nuts because they can cause little cuts inside of my gut microbiome. Uh, What do you say to that? Because now every time I I eat nuts, I think about that. I'm like, oh, I better chew this into as much of a paste as possible. (laughs) Yeah, so nuts are really healthy for us and they're great for our microbiome. There are certain people with certain medical conditions where whole nuts are less healthy They won't cut into your microbiome, but for example, if you have something called diverticular disease, which is a really common bowel condition where you have these little pockets inside your bowel, and then things like nuts can be quite abrasive on the bowel. So if you have a bowel condition, then I often recommend to my patients when I've seen them in clinic and I've assessed them to think about using nut butters rather than having whole nuts. But that's in like a very specific medical situation. And we know that higher than nut consumption in general in people's diets the better their gut health will be. So for a general person who doesn't have a, a condition that's got inflammation in the gut, then nuts are a really healthy and positive thing to consume. How do people stick to a plan? A lot of people have been able to get on a diet, lose weight, see results, and then you see the, the pendulum swing the other way where they just hit this, satu- this saturation point where they all of a sudden just start binge eating the other way. And it's not necessarily that they were really restricting their diet or starving themselves. They just find that it swings the other way. What typically is happening? Yeah, so whenever we're in a in a state of fasting, so we're burning calories, our body, um, so we're losing weight, our body is going to look for ways to reverse that. 
your body is going to be saying, I don't like this. Your, your body wants body fat. Like that's our survival mechanism, right? So we're evolved in such complicated and, and, and clever ways to retain body fat and then to get it back if we've lost it. So it's, it is really hard for people to maintain weight loss. Not impossible, but really hard. And as you say, like even if it's a balanced way of eating, often that will still mean some level of restriction or excess calorie reduction, which is, is difficult for people. And I think the, the one of the challenges is when we lose weight, we often then, uh, we don't burn as many calories. So the heavier you are, the more calories you burn every day. So what's super, super important when you're doing any kind of weight loss and really helpful for maintaining that weight loss is doing strength training because building muscle mass continues to help you to have a much higher metabolic rate because muscle uses energy just in its very existence. So even if you weigh the same, but you have more muscle mass than somebody else, you are going to be burning more calories just by sitting down, just in the nature of maintaining that muscle mass. So doing strength training as part of your weight loss is really helpful for maintaining weight loss in the long run, as well as just looking at your relationship with food. So I work with lots of patients that have yo-yo dieted throughout their life. And the problem with yo-yo dieting, and by, what, by that I mean exactly what you're describing, so losing weight and then regaining it very quickly afterwards, often more than you, you lost before, is because they haven't addressed their relationship with food. So they're still using food as their kind of support system as the thing that brings them joy and that gives them community and that does all the things that they needed to do for them rather than thinking okay what are all the other things I can do and of course when we're losing weight and often if we're getting compliments on that weight loss that's giving us some endorphins we're feeling good about ourselves in that moment but that isn't necessarily what we what we need forever we need to find lots of other ways of, of balancing things out for ourselves and developing hobbies and interests and things that aren't food related and aren't necessarily exercise related so that we've got that better balance in our lives sounds like a lot of work sophie sounds oh like yeah a lot. We, you know <laughs> and i think these these companies that sell waste weight loss solutions and diet books and all of that kind of stuff we kind of it make they make it sound easy you know they make it sound like this is the solution this is what you need when in reality we've got to learn to listen to our bodies again and that's that's not easy in an environment where we've all been taught to mistrust our bodies by the diet industry so it sounds like when we're really talking about weight loss, it's really about how do we increase our connection to community, to purpose, to, um, you know, just finding ways of engaging with other people and, uh, you know, being of service. Yeah, I think so. I think it's about finding lots of ways things in your life that bring you purpose that make you feel good about yourself that improve your self-esteem that you know that think little things that you can do in the evenings to big things that you do for your community or for other people around you finding work that brings you purpose and joy and makes you feel good about yourself and you know none of that stuff is easy and I, I appreciate there's going to be people listening thinking I don't have any of those things in my life but it's about the small steps that you make each day to work towards these things that are going to make everything easier in the long run and the worst thing we can do for ourselves when we're struggling with our weight is to beat ourselves up about it and feel crap about ourselves. Because, of course, that makes everything worse, makes us want to comfort eat and, and, and everything more as opposed to less. So it's about sort of being kind to yourself, nurturing yourself, understanding about your relationship with food so that you can work on that in the long run and not listening to these quick fixes, because in the end, they're going to make things harder for you. Yeah, when people are reading these uh, nutrition labels, is there something specifically that they should definitely be looking out for? 
so the things that we that I worry about so I've been a dietitian for 16 years something like that the things that I worry about in foods are the things that are associated with ultra processed foods so things like sweeteners things like emulsifiers things like preservatives all of these things there's increasing evidence um that are that they're really negative for our health and lots of these things will crop up in foods that have what I call a health halo so they might be foods that appear healthy because they may be vegan or they might be high in protein, for example. But ultimately, it's about really looking to minimize your intake of these ultra processed foods because they are associated with much worse health outcomes. So it's not to say forget about the calories, but it's certainly to say the calories on the label is not the be all and end all of the quality of a product. And nuts and avocados and things like that are a great example of that. You know, calories are are one part of, you know, and a relatively small part of our overall nutrition. It's really about thinking about the quality of our diet if we want to improve our long-term health and our short-term health. Love that. Um, you know, one of the things that I had been struggling with is waking up in the middle of the night. And then I discovered that is it was because I was eating so close to bedtime that yeah. it was causing an insulin spike like four or five hours later. Can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. So all of us have a different what we call biological night. So after in, in the research, we generally use 9 p.m. as the cutoff for when our bodies are generally sleeping and go, wanting to slow down metabolically. And so what happens is if we eat after 9 p.m., our body is much slower at processing that food. It's much less efficient. So sugar sits in our system for longer, sugar from carbohydrates, sugar from simple sugars as well. And then also, if we have too much fat late at night, our body then finds that more difficult to metabolize. And so that fat will sit around in our bloodstream for longer, causing more harm to our general, you know, to our body in general, but also our health. So the thing that we think about, is, and, and some people, we all have a different circadian rhythm. So, for example, if we think about Italian populations who will sit around late at night and eat bigger meals and, and that's normal for them, that will be part of their genetic makeup, that that's OK for them. But it might not be OK for you. And we have to listen to our bodies and learn to listen to our bodies and, and think about what what they're telling us. And for the vast majority of people, eating past 9 p.m. is much less positive for our general health just because our body is ready to go to sleep. It doesn't want to be processing food. Our melatonin is starting to come up. So what our body's thinking about is shutting all its metabolic metabolic processes down, not making sure that there's enough insulin around at that particular moment to, to process that food. So what might be happening for you there, Leo, is that at that, that sort of four o'clock in the morning moment, as your body's starting to come out of its sort of deep sleep cycle, melatonin starting to drop down, your body's starting to upregulate insulin production again, waking you up. So what do you recommend being the cutoff for night eating for the average person? And what should that meal look like? Because you mentioned that protein and fat um, are hard for us to digest, uh, you know, while we're sleeping. So when I, when I, like for my, for instance, for myself, I try to get my proteins and, uh, or my fats and sugars in during lunch and breakfast. And then um, for dinner, I try to have a um, a low fat, high protein, like a white fish with vegetables. Sometimes that works. Sometimes the the, the vegetables are a bit too gassy for me because I've eaten too much. But what do you typically recommend uh, a plate should look like for dinner? Yeah, so it's the the carbs and the fats that we're less efficient at digesting 
at night. And so you want to be doing pretty much what you're doing, Leo, which is focusing on on vegetables and, and, and hopefully, you know, in an ideal world, less starchy vegetables, particularly if you have to eat at night. And one of the things I'm conscious of is that some people work shifts. Some people don't get home from work until late. So you're going to have to eat at that time. So if you're having to eat past nine o'clock on a regular basis, and let me be clear, we all eat past nine o'clock sometimes on holidays, go out for dinner, whatever it might be. All of those things are fine. It's the things that you do most days that are things that are going to be impactful on your health. So it's really important to think about focusing on your plate, having plenty of vegetables on it so that you've got some slow release carbohydrates through the night to help you stay asleep. And hopefully they're less starchy vegetables, right? So green leafy vegetables, for example, are perfect to eat late at night. And then having that nice protein and and fish and lean protein is what you want to be focusing on if you are eating later. So chicken, fish, that kind of stuff is the better thing to be eating late at night. And I think most people would recognize that if you eat a massive bowl of pasta just before bed, or if you eat a steak just before bed, your sleep is going to be less positive. It's not going to be as good a night's sleep as you could be having. So those are the things to be thinking about. And it's not to say that you can never eat these things or never have these things. But just like you say, Leo, it's really important to think about when you have them in the day and when you want to be eating various different things, particularly if sleep is something you want to be focusing on. Yeah, I was experimenting with eating my body weight and protein. So I was 220. And then so I was eating like 220 grams of protein a day. And I saw some great results with that. And then I kind of I felt like I hit a plateau at some point. Um, And so what what what, why do we why does a a diet seem to be working and then we hit a plateau? So, I mean, I guess the question is, when we find a diet, do we stick to that or do we need to mix up the diet? I think, you know, with any diet, variety is key. So making sure that you're getting plenty of variety in your diet. And I see these patients who have been given a diet by a personal trainer, for example, and it's like eat steak and sweet potato and rice and that's all you're eating. And they just eat the same things on repeat day after day because it feels is working for them because they feel safe and it feels like you know this is positive for me when reality that's not good for our bodies our body needs variety in order to function properly and so we want to be making sure that whatever style of eating we choose and whatever style of eating suits our body that we're still getting that really positive variety in our diet and that's how you'll be able to stick to it that's how you'll be able to benefit from it in the long run so there's loads of really positive reasons and important reasons to maintain really good dietary variety, even when you are perhaps being careful with your calories or you're being careful with focusing on protein, for example, in that time. So our bodies, whenever we're going through a weight loss phase, as our kind of, um, as I said before, the heavier we are, the more calories we naturally burn. So the easier it is for us to burn calories. So what lots of people will experience is that sort of rapid weight gain initially And then it will plateau off and people think, oh, it's not working anymore. I give up and they get really disheartened. When in reality, what we need to do is just shift things around a little bit. So it might be that it's time to switch up your exercise a little bit. It might be that it's time to think about um, adjusting your calories a little bit and working with somebody to figure out exactly how many calories you need for that particular phase. And these things are all about trial and error and listening to your body and taking time and not trying to force something. And sometimes what people find is, if they continue with that consistency, if they can keep the dietary variety high, but continue with the consistency of whatever macros they're looking at, or whatever it might be, then they can continue to see that benefit of that weight loss. But sometimes we do need to adjust things around a little bit and make some tw- small tweaks that then help the weight to start coming down again. When people have that 3 p.m. slump, 
right? It's like you had lunch and all of a sudden now you're just, your, your brain is no bueno for the rest of the day. Is that normal or are we, I, one, I would assume, you know, our sleep probably wasn't great the night before. I think most people struggle with a great night's sleep. But two, are we eating things at lunch that's causing the 3 p.m. slump? And how do we work around that? So I always say to my patients, it's completely normal to be hungry at that time. It's just your body. It's your lunch wearing off and you're hungry and it's normal. So it's it could be that you've had loads of carbohydrates at lunchtime and those have gone in and come out very quickly. What we don't want people to be doing at that point is then picking up cookies, picking up things around the office and then starting to eat them because then the blood sugars are going to continue to go up and down all afternoon and they end up in this cycle of overeating. So what I recommend to people on, on a weekly basis is to have a strategic snack planned for three o'clock or whatever that time is that you start to feel hungry. And what's really important is that you have that snack before you're so hungry that you can't choose the healthy things. So all of us, when we're stressed and tired and we're sort of flagging, it's the end of the day, we're going to want to eat the sugar. We're going to want the sugar. We're going to want the carbs. We're going to want the fat. We want the highly palatable foods because that's what we're programmed biologically to want when we're hungry and tired and stressed. So it's really helpful to have a strategic snack planned and with you so that you can have that just before that point where you become so hungry that you can't make a rational choice. And the sorts of things I'm talking about are, are basic stuff. So things like apple and peanut butter, yogurt with some fruits and nuts in it. I'm talking about carrot sticks and hummus, those kinds of things that are you know readily available, that are easy, that you can carry with you, but that aren't going to be less de- more detrimental to your health. So having that strategic snack plays two roles. One, it stops you from picking at the stuff that you find, going to the fridge to raid it and find whatever you can get your hands on. But also it can really help you to to manage your portion size in the evening. So I also speak to lots of patients who maybe aren't picking up the snacks, but they're getting home and they're so hungry and they're so tired that they're eating loads in the evening or they're jumping on food delivery apps because they haven't even got the sort of bandwidth to consider making a healthy meal for themselves. So that's where that snack is super helpful, super important. And it's really helpful to make it something that includes some plants and some protein extra plant points, but also making sure that your blood sugars don't spike and that you're not riding this kind of carbohydrate wave all through the afternoon that's going to make it more difficult for you to make healthier choices. Yeah, I see more and more people wearing the glucose monitor uh, around. And I don't even know if it's like, I feel like more and more people are just wearing it and it's not even recommended by the doctor. Can you just get that now? Yeah, you can. You can just go in and get it, huh? Yeah, basically. And I think there's some real, you know, problem like problematic stuff going on in that in those communities that are pushing glucose monitors because we all have completely normal fluctuations in our blood sugars within the the normal range and and that's it's our body doing our job its job it's completely normal and nothing to worry about but when you look at those results what people will find is that when they eat an apple their blood sugar spikes more than if they eat fried chicken. And of course, the right thing to eat is the apple. But the messaging that you're getting then is, oh, I'm really confused about what I should and shouldn't be eating and what I've believed about nutrition all this time is wrong. And that's not the case. And I think we need to just be careful not to pathologize completely normal fluctuations in blood sugars and make people panic about it. Because we just because your blood sugars are fluctuating 
doesn't mean something's bad is going to happen. Doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It's it's a completely normal biological process. But with, you know, without with people just picking these things up now without proper guidance and proper input, it can cause way more anxiety and way more concerns, and also way worse decision making than you might make with without one. Yeah, because I found that with the the sleep app, I, I was monitoring my sleep, and then. You know, I'd wake up feeling great, but then the sleep app would be like, you only got like, you only like got 56%. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm only at 56% then. And it would be demoralizing. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel that, right? You you go, hang on, I thought I slept well, but now I feel crap about my day and how I'm going to feel today. And I'm worried about it because I've seen this data. So it is, you know, our relationship with health tech is very important. I was at the farmer's market a few days ago and there was a guy selling cheese and I was like, I don't really eat cheese because I'm lactose intolerant. And then he shared something with me that I I don't know if I had known before and forgotten, but he said that uh, lactose in milk um, is high, but as it ages, the lactose decreases, which is why a lot of people who are lactose intolerant in America, when they go to Europe, I find that they can actually eat uh, dairy products without having any lact- lactose intolerance. Is that the case? Does lactose in- decrease as the product is aged, like cheese? Yeah, so there's there's a few mis- in- misconceptions in there. One, it's the fermentation process of making cheese and making things like yogurt and kefir So when those things are being fermented, the lactose, which is the sugar in cheese, is the substrate for the bacteria to ferment. So they have already fermented the sugar in the cheese. So therefore, there's no there's no more lactose left in that cheese because it's already been fermented by bacteria. Does that make sense? So it's not necessarily the aging process of the cheese per se, but the fermentation process of those products that significantly reduces the lactose in them to basically nothing because the sugar in the milk, which is the lactose, has already been fermented by bacteria. Yeah. When you say fermented, uh, you mean like uh, digested or eaten up or? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So bacteria use sugar as their substrate for creating fermentation for them to multiply and, and to become a colony. So they've already digested that sugar in the cheese for you. So in the milk that made cheese. So you don't need to worry about the lactose in cheese. Some people are still really sensitive to lactose. So some people who are lactose intolerant will still find that, you know, they have to be careful with how much cheese they consume. But in reality, most people who are lactose intolerant will be able to consume, uh, you know, even a reasonably large amount of cheese without having side effects and without having problems from it. So it's definitely worth experimenting with different cheeses and everyone's different. You know, even if you're quite profoundly lactose intolerant, you'll still be producing some of the lactase enzyme. So you will be able to digest some of the of the milk of the sugar that's left over in a cheese for example and the more aged the cheese is so like a blue cheese for example the more easy it will be for you to digest if you are lactose intolerant so it's definitely worth experimenting so we and then the piece about mm, oh go ahead so and the piece about uh european milk for example being different from american milk is around farming practices so intensively bred cattle intensively bred and and cattle that have been selected specifically for their milk for their milk production the same happens in the UK so cattle that have been really intensively farmed and intensively bred to have high milk production 
often produce a second protein in their milk. And so that second protein is often the one that people are intolerant to. That's slightly different to lactose intolerance. But I do hear lots of patients who say I've moved over from Africa, for example, and I could digest the milk there. But here I'm really sensitive to it. And we generally think it's because of that intense farming that's happened in in Western farming practices to develop cows that are so big, such big milk producers that they end up causing digestive issues for some people. I have never heard of a second protein in milk. That's fascinating. Yeah. Is there a name for that protein? Well, there's a, there was a company that that stopped using the cattle that um, produced that second protein. They're an Australian company, and the, the milk was called A2 milk, and they coined the term A1 and A2 proteins. And it's the A1 protein, the new protein that that causes problems for lots of people. And there's you know theories around that. People think that that's why some people get asthma with dairy products. They think that that might be why some people get skin problems from some dairy products. And actually, if that's you, you might find that goat's milk, for example, or milk from less intensively bred animals is much, you, you find it, you find you tolerate it better because they've they're just not been so heavily uh, naturally selected to produce lots of milk that things are slightly mutated. So we talked a lot about food and nutrition and protein and intolerance and what we're putting in our body. Is there an impact? on how we're putting it in our body in terms of how foods are absorbed or digested. And I mean, more specifically of if I'm eating healthy, quote unquote, healthy foods, right? If I'm eating the Mediterranean diet or the mind diet or whatever, but I I don't enjoy it. Like I'm just, I'm like, I'm resentful. Like, why do I have to eat like this? And everybody, and it feels like everybody else is eating ice cream and and burgers. Um, Does that, do I get the same nutritional benefit if I'm eating it kind of resentfully? Like the, the kid eating his his vegetables at the table, but he doesn't want to. <laughs> yeah, so I think what's really important to acknowledge is that there's been a, a sort of historic move. Uh, you know, nutrition is is generally built. So if we think about the Mediterranean diet, for example, it's not inclusive of people from other cultures, for example. And when we force people to move away from foods that are are not within their sort of family culture and foods that feel good to them, foods that are connected to their history and to their their culture and the way that they want to eat, what we find is that people don't enjoy those foods as much. It's much more difficult for them to follow those diets. They feel excluded from their family and they feel socially isolated. It's the same with people who have allergies and intolerances and things like that, where they can't engage in social eating in the same way as other people can, that has a negative impact on your mental health. So in patients who have celiac disease, for example, so like a true allergy to to gluten, those people often suffer with with anxiety and depression more than those who don't have to follow that specific diet. And that's tough. So it's, it's really important to acknowledge that the way that we choose to eat, and if that causes social isolation, I see it more and more in men doing extreme fasting type diets where they're no longer eating with their family and they're not engaging in family life because they can't eat with their kids because that's past their fasting window. Those aren't things that we consider to be healthy or things that we consider to be good for you in terms of your holistic mental and physical health. So we have to find ways of eating that are in keeping with our culture, in line with our values, in line with the things that make us feel good and that allow us to engage in social eating. Otherwise, 
we're not doing ourselves the favor and the benefits because we're going to end up more stressed and more stressed we are the less healthy we are and all of these things have an impact so it's really about finding ways of eating that and keeping and in line with your values with your ethics and with the things that you want to do but also allow you to be an active part of your community and enjoy food in a social way there's so many reasons that that the way that you eat has an impact and our our values and our culture are really really important part of that so restrictive diets are not the one we need to still be able to enjoy social eating and all of that kind of stuff as part of any diet even if it might be something that's related to weight loss and you still get the nutritional benefits of eating the carrots you'll still be better off in terms of someone who's snacking on potato chips for example you're still better off eating the carrots than the person eating the potato chips from a nutritional perspective but from a general well-being and, and, and holistic health perspective you're going to be having some downsides as well for sure Sophie Medlin, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think should would be of value to my listeners in terms of nutrition, diet, um, just anything related to uh, what you've seen in your practice and, and uh, where you're like, more people should know about this? Do you know what? I think we've covered some like solid ground today. I think we've got some good things in there. I think my key messages would be Think about your gut health, think about your holistic health and try and listen to your body because everybody's different and everybody's body is different. And when we try to conform and, and stick to something that doesn't feel right for us or doesn't serve us, that's when we can run into more problems. So, uh, and you know, the other really important piece that we've talked about today is if you are struggling with your relationship with food and you know all the things, then it's time to get some help from a dietitian and not download another you know, ebook about dieting or follow any next fad diet, get some help and, and talk to somebody because that's the key to unlocking the, the things that you're cha- you, that are challenging you. Yeah, because you, you said it's really about experimentation and, and testing what works and what doesn't work. And a book really isn't going to be able to guide you through that process. Uh, if people nope, want to work you- with you, uh, oh, go ahead, Sophie. No, and I think, you know, it doesn't give you the opportunity to explore your own body and listen to your own body. And it's just trying to sell you something. And that's not going to be the next quick fix for you. If people want to work with you or connect to you, uh, how could they do that? Yeah. So my website is citydietitians.co.uk. We're based in London, but we are available virtually. I've got a team of 16 amazing dietitians now who cover all areas of health from like diabetes and, and weight loss and sports nutrition to the stuff that I do around bowel health and relationship with food and all sorts of other things in between. So check us out. We all work virtually so people can see us from the States and we often work with people overseas. When we're working with people in America and in Australia, we have to disclose that we're working as nutritionists under the title because we're registered dietitians in the UK, but it won't change our practice or anything that we're doing. So it's no problem. Um, And then I'm on Instagram under Sophie Dietitian. So I'm pretty easy to find everywhere. And the company that I work for, well, one of the companies I work for producing vitamins, which might be relevant to your audience, Leo, is called Heights. It's yourheights.com. And the products are available to ship to the US as well. I love it. Last two questions. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Sophie? I think there's always someone who wants to listen. There's always someone on the end of the phone. So find that person and, and speak to them because nobody wants that for you or, or any anyone else around them. And if you don't have that person in your life, then reach out to a charity, reach out to an organization, 
and build those connections and, and join support groups and people that can be there with you and on that journey because things will always get better. And then last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Oh, nice. Nice question. So I've got a lovely clinic tomorrow. I'm going to finish working after this podcast and relax with my lovely dog. And yeah, I'm looking forward to all of those things. I love it. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for calling to get help. Call the 988 or any of the 800 numbers that are listed in all the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Sophie. Pleasure. Thank you for having me.